0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 155. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey,
0: everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is going to be Chris Coyne, who's a professor of economics at George Mason University and the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. He's also a co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics and the Independent Review, and he serves as the book review editor for the journal Public Choice. So we're going to be talking mostly about Chris's latest two books, focusing on war economics and then how the warfare state brings tyranny back home domestically. Along the way, we also just talk a lot about Austrian economics and the applications to these topics. So without further ado, here is my interview with Chris Coyne. Well, Chris, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here, and it's good to see you again. Nice seeing you. So for those who are watching on the YouTube version of this, they can see it looks like there's a brick background behind you. Now, is this just a studio production, or is that actually brick?
1: No, no, it's it's a studio production for events like this. I, I figure it's better than the what's behind it, which is nineteen late nineteen seventy, early nineteen eighty accordion closet door. So, uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. So I still have the the uh, in this this rental house that we're in. I've been you know since the pandemic, I've been recording from here. At some point, uh, folks, I will get like you know a cool skyline or something, and you'll you'll think that I'm broadcasting from from uh, downtown. So. <laughs> Can you give us just the, the you know, I, I'm sure plenty of my listeners, you know, have heard your name. They know you're, let me ask you this. Do you call yourself an Austrian economist or are you just like a, interested in and respected, but you don't use labels? And it's not, I'm no. sure quite, I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know.
1: No, 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 of course. I, I certainly do. Um, okay. I, I certainly identify with that label, um, you know, and, and I have for a long time since I first got interested in economics and started to consider myself, you know, someone who took, studied economics seriously, um, I, I've identified with, with Austrian economics. I mean, I'm an economist by training, just right. like you are. Right. But certainly in terms of, of schools of thought, um, I, I most closely identify with, with the Austrians.
0: Now, do you remember what it was specifically? Because I'm just curious, as, you know, people take different paths. And what, what was it, you know, that you realized, oh, it's not just that I like economics, but, you know, this Austrian school is the particular
1: variant. Certainly. So it, it all happened very quickly, and um, really, I, you know, I was a, a I was a uh, undergraduate student at Manhattan College um, mm-hmm. in, in New York City, and I was studying economics, and I I, I was kind of indifferent to it. I uh, you know didn't didn't love it or hate it. I was just kind of going through the motions. I also stud- was studying finance, which is what I wanted to work in, um, and I did work in finance for several years before going back to graduate school, but my Junior year, so my third year of school, uh, I had Peter Becky Peter Becky left NYU, mm-hmm. uh, came to Manhattan College for a year before he went to um, back to Mason, right, where he has remained since. And so I, I just happened to take two elective classes with him, comparative economic systems and public economics. And in comparative, um, we were introduced to Mises and Hayek in right. uh, the calculation debate and, and that history. And in public economics, we were introduced to James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. Um, And, you know, I I had real no insight, no insight into any of these thinkers beyond what I was learning at the time. But both of them really opened my eyes to seeing the world in a way I hadn't seen it, understanding it. Mm -hmm. Um, Pete left after that year. I just kept uh, uh, reading, uh, you know, these thinkers on my own. You know, a lot of people get into Austrian economics through libertarianism. I didn't. I actually started by reading Mises and, and Hayek and not, for instance, Mises liberalism. Um, but some of his pure economic works. Um, and then only after that, you know, I Googled around, uh, I found the Mies Institute, which was a very kind of early mover at that time because mm. we're talking here in, in the late 90s, they were an earlier mover with posting a lot of content on the web. Right, um, right. So uh, there I got exposed to Murray Rothbard uh, and so on, So started reading all that and and a bunch of other Austrian thinkers, certainly more contemporary thinkers as well. Um, and just kept reading on my own. So a lot of my education pre-graduate school in economics was really kind of self-taught um, and, and, and a lot of reading, going to lectures in New York City and so on. Um, and, and that's kind of how I got into it. And then when I when I decided to go back to graduate school, um, Mason was the only place I applied to. I knew I wanted to work with Pete and study Austrian economics. Um, and, and so it's kind of the the history in brief. Okay.
0: For the benefit, I've had a few people on maybe who've talked about it, but Can you just give us the quick version of, I know a lot of my listeners, they know the Austrian stuff, they know Rothbard. They have heard of Buchanan and Tulloch, but they haven't read much of it. And so what's, for someone who's like, you know, I'm an Austrian, what else do I need to know? Like, why should they become more aware of like what the public, what does the public choice school bring to the table that the Austrian canon, you know, you wouldn't
1: have realized without... Certainly. That's a a wonderful question. And, and, you know, there's different views on Buchanan and Tullock um, by those in Austrian economics, and that's all fine. You know, with a lot of this stuff, I always try to look for areas of complementarity and sure. kind of value-added. And I do think there's a lot of value-added. Um, but, you know, if I had to kind of distill down a, a a very broad body of work, it would really be this idea of of, of symmetry of assumptions. So we assume that actors in markets, in market settings are purposeful actors, as, as Mises taught us. They, they have goals that they seek to achieve. Uh, for a long period of time, and still today, but to a lesser degree, uh, economists assumed that when we talked about politics or when we talked about people in politics, they were somehow acting in the public interest. So, you know, the standard kind of welfare economic story is you have some social welfare function that is known to the state, and then the state takes Uh, steps to maximize that welfare, they correct market failures and so on. Really what Buchanan early on in the 40s uh, uh, emphasized was that we have to take this box that people are calling the state and unpack it. And we can't just assume that it's kind of this supercomputer that has access to both the social welfare function and the ability or the desire that is the incentive to maximize that social welfare function. And so what does it entail to unpack that box the state well we need to look at both the incentives that constitute the various layers of the state which are, of course are very complex and also the epistemic properties the knowledge properties and that's where i think the connection between or one connection between Buchanan and the Austrians is quite clear which is this this emphasis on there's no way for someone in a state or an analyst even even the most well-trained, smartest economists to access the preferences of human beings when we take those preferences as being subjective mm-hmm. in the mind of the actor, and somehow aggregate them into some kind of welfare function that can be acted upon by the state. And if you read Buchanan, and especially in the 40s, 50s, uh, and even to the 60s, you know. And then you read Murray Rothbard, for instance, on welfare economics and, and his and his uh, work on, on a reconstruction of, of welfare economics. There's a lot of similarities. A lot of similarities in terms of a, a appreciation for the subjectivism of utility on the part of the individual actor. The fact that that subjectivism means that opportunity cost is not, not number one, not objective, but number number two, never acted upon because it's in the mind of the actor. So you, as an external observer, you can never know what that cost is because it's never acted upon. And that has some radical implications for the way we, we think about welfare economics and policy. Um, you know, if, if people are interested in this, and, and, and they said, well, what can I read more? Of course, you can read Buchanan. You know, Thomas DiLorenzo has a, a wonderful paper in the Review of Austrian Economics. Uh, I think this is when Murray Rothbard was editing the journal. Uh, and it's, it's called something like the subjectivist foundations of James Buchanan's constitutional political economy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not getting it exactly right, but it's something like that. And he talks about several of the points I just raised, Buchanan's work in in his book, Cost and Choice, which is a a radically subjective notion of opportunity cost uh, and several other points as well. And so that would be kind of a good starting point. And Mises and Hayek um, really understood, although it's not the the kind of emphasis of their analysis of central planning, they understood many of these issues that we would call public choice issues today. You know, uh, uh, they, they take in the initial kind of iteration or, or maybe the, the, the first and second iteration of the calculation debate, they take the motivations of planners and, and, as constant. They, they, they assume benevolence mm-hmm. on the part of the planners. And they do so not because they're naive to the world, <laughs> that, that they actually assume people are benevolent, but they're saying, look, let me give my opponents in the debate kind of the... the, the Best terms or conditions I can, and then see if they actually can succeed in achieving their stated ends. Mm -hmm. And of course, what Mises uh, and Hayek showed was that the means, the proposed means, were not suitable to achieve those ends. But you know, both of them recognize—again, it's not fully developed—but both of them recognize that the other issue with all this is you are going to give a significant amount of of discretionary power to a small group of people over the lives of other human beings when you give them the ability to plan economic Mm -hmm. life and. There are good reasons to believe that undesirable people are going to rise to positions of power uh, to secure the planning power, but also to utilize it to achieve their own their own goals at the expense of the very people they purport to want to assist. And so when you combine these insights, I think it's quite powerful analysis. You have the kind of epistemic or, or you know calculation type argument that, that Mises and Hayek make, and then you have the uh, a Buchanan-Tulloch emphasis on symmetry of assumptions uh, and incentives in politics. And it's a pretty powerful com- combination. Okay,
0: great. Yeah, you, so you touched on a lot of issues there. Let me just make sure the listeners got the the gist of it. So when you're saying symmetry of assumptions, what you're getting at is like, I think probably the best example is when it comes to standard like market failure theory, where it's like, oh, look at all these ways that, you know, if the, if the, comp- if the market deviates from the assumptions of perfect competition and these, you know, simplistic models, We wouldn't expect the equilibrium outcome to be Pareto optimal. And therefore there's a role for the state to come in and they just move on with their lives and don't ask, well, wait a minute. Yes, like, you know, global climate change, let's say that's a thing and that's a problem, negative externality, but why would it be in the interest of, you know, the people running the government of some tiny little country to wreck their economy for the benefit of the mass of humanity 50 years from now? That doesn't make any sense either. You know what I mean? In other words, a corporate CEO goes ahead and 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 burns fossil fuels because, oh, it's not his immediate self-interest. Why wouldn't he, by the same token? Then why would you assume the governments of the world are going to get together and solve the problem? so th- 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 that is that what you're getting at with the the symmetry of assumptions.
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's that people are not transformed. From when they move from, from what, the private setting, whether it's for-profit or nonprofit, to the political setting. It's not, you know, if John Corzine, when he was CEO of Goldman Sachs, I'm from New Jersey and New York, mm-hmm. so, you know, John Corzine was the CEO of Goldman Sachs for, before he was a politician in New Jersey. If, he is, if you say, well, when he's CEO of Goldman Sachs, he is selfish, greedy, uh, you know, and so on, it's not when he gets elected to office that all of a sudden he transforms into an angel calling right. him a public servant or a civil servant doesn't change his nature he's still John Corzon he has purposes and plans he is mm-hmm. shaped by the incentives that and and the and the features of the environment he's, he's in which varies certainly a a for-profit firm is different than politics but that's kind of the assumption rather than saying as you as you pointed out you know markets do stuff people in markets do things that generates market failures government fixes those well What's the government? Who is the government? What 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 information and knowledge do they have, and what is needed to achieve the the stated claim? Not made by proponents of markets, but by proponents of government fixing markets right. and market failure.
0: And then another thing you you said there, I remember, was it like called the LSE Essays on Cost or something? Yep. Was it, is that a collection? So that yep. wasn't all Buchanan, right? It was like was Buchanan one in there among other? Yep, that's I right. Mixed? Okay, He's so yeah,
1: won, one essay. It's a collection of essays, right? So
0: I remember, yeah, that one. So by the way, folks, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 155, where I'll put links to the things that I can find that are, you know, up for free. Um, and I remember, yeah, Buchanan making that point, I don't am paraphrasing, but saying cost is never realized, it's always like ex-ante, or it's always anticipated. Exactly. And that kind of blew my mind when I, so can you just spell that out? Like, What, what does Buchanan mean when he's saying cost is always something in the future, you never realize, well, oh, what was the cost of
1: that decision? Sure. So the, you know he differentiates kind of between forward-looking and backward-looking costs, which mm. is really what you're getting at. At the moment of action, we are always anticipating because we we, are, we live as Mises said. This is why I think there's a tight connection. Even though, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying Buchanan and Mises and Hayek and Tullock. It's not that they're all carbon copies of each other. By the mm. way, there's many areas where they disagree. But on this on this topic, I think again there's some nice complementarity. Which is when human beings act, as Mises said, you know the kind of prerequisites of action. We live in a world of uncertainty. You have to be able to envision a preferable state of affairs. You have to believe in causality, that you think that you can kind of marshal the, the means to bring about that preferable state of affairs. Well, that's all requires anticipation and in envisioning a future state of the world. That's all in the mind of the actor. The, the opportunity cost, the, the trade-off, the next best alternative is in your mind. It is something that, that you are perceiving an opportunity, and, or or a potential cost of action, I should say. And you say, I could do that or I could do something else. And then you choose to do something. The foregone alternative, the opportunity cost, which you, you weighed at the moment of action, is never acted upon. It is foregone by definition. And so it's not an objective thing. It's both perceived by the actor through the lens of their mind. That's the subjective part, meaning that the way you perceive a cost is not the way I will perceive it and so on. And it's never observable to other people because it's never acted upon in a concrete way. And, uh, uh, you know, this is why Rothbard talks about demonstrated preference. As economists, we focus on what is demonstrated through concrete action because we can't talk about other things because we don't have access to them. And it's a similar type of point. And so that raises a host of of interesting uh, insights, one of them being that there's no way to, you know, even for an individual actor to kind of get access to the way they rank all states of the world so that I can make judgments then about you know, whether they've made a good or bad trade-off or move, movements I can make to improve their, their welfare. Um, then we move from the individual to society, a group of people. There's no, no way to add anything up, to aggregate up. And there's, of course, there's social choice theorists. They're kind of worried about the logistics and operationalizing, adding stuff up. But this point is even more fundamental. Like, can you actually... Oh, is there stuff to add up, and and it, you know the the Buchanan point is that there's a, a big chunk of things missing that you can't add up, and those things are really important, which are subjective evaluations, and this isn't just some esoteric point; it has practical implications today. You know, you brought up externalities, another area where this is crucial is public goods, and and most kind of standard treatments of public goods is okay. Something has public good as- aspects in the, in the Samuelsonian sense, Paul Samuelson, so it's non-rivalrous and non-excludable. Therefore, severely under-provided on the market, state has to provide it. And then you kind of move on. And often these are enormous issues, if you think about it. So the kind of the textbook tre- uh, example is national defense. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, I, I with a student a couple of years ago, I had them look through the top uh, principles of micro, intermediate micro, and public finance textbooks for Public goods and national defense is the example in like ninety-seven percent of books, but it's like two paragraphs. But then that leaves a whole host of important issues untouched, which is well, what constitutes defense? How do people know this? How do they provide it? Uh, what's the marginal unit of defense? Uh, how do they know how to stop? As as Rothbard once said. You know, goods don't fall from on, on high in prepackaged bundles. Mm-hmm. People have to make decisions about marginal units, both over in terms of the amount, but in terms of of quantity as well. And so, uh, you know, just saying something is a public good and then saying, "Well, the state can provide it," doesn't solve any of the the economic issues. It just raises a whole host of issues. And so, from that standpoint, these insights I think are still relevant today.
0: Okay, well, that's great. So why don't we? Go into then, um, two of your recent books, you know, talking about defense that'll come up in a, in a minute, I suppose. But the one, let's see, let me pull up the exact title here. So, the first one I want to talk about is your book that came out in 2018 with, um, that was co authored, right? Yeah, with Abigail yeah. Hall. Abigail okay. Hall, yep. Okay, and then so the title here is Tyranny Comes Home The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. So can you give us a,
1: a quick overview of that and then we'll we'll dive in? Certainly. Um and so the 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 core argument in that book that, that Abby and I make is that when a society, or more specifically, the, the government that supposedly governs over a society in the interest of citizens adopts a, a proactive militaristic foreign policy, it has real effects on domestic life. And so again, a lot of You know, a a lot of this discussion comes out of the 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 points you and I were just discussing, which Mm -hmm. is the way economists talk about defense is it's kind of this entity that is provided by the state. It's always value added. It is always for the good. Again, you know, in economics, good has a very specific meaning, which you know people want it. They want more as, as compared to less, holding all else constant. But what if things that fall under the purview of state provided defense actually generate bads? For the people that uh, uh, are supposedly served by the state, that's kind of the motivating question we ask. And so, you know, we talk about how this might happen. Uh, and you know, at the core of our argument is what we call the the boomerang effect. And, and a well thrown boomerang, when it, when you throw it, it comes back to the person who throws it if you throw it properly. And so, the argument is that foreign interventions, both preparing for them and engaging in them, uh, often boomerangs back and comes back to the to the country that is intervening abroad or preparing to intervene abroad and undermines domestic liberties and freedoms and you know to, co- to provide a, a very high level of, of how this might operate you know you think about what is entailed in um, both preparing for and engaging in foreign interventions and really the state invests a significant amount of resources in developing tools techniques and methods to control other human beings to intervene the reason you intervene in other society, is because you don't like the status quo. If you like the status quo, there'd be no urge to intervene. And so you wanna get change. So how do you get change? Well, you can ask people, you can say, please behave differently. uh, And they might voluntarily comply. uh, But if they don't, you can either leave or you can backstop your demands with force or the threat thereof. And so foreign interventions at their core require the existence of an apparatus of controlling other human beings. And then, what does that involve? Well, it involves the state redirecting monetary resources and human capital to developing these techniques, to developing ways of controlling people. And just like entrepreneurship works in markets and improves human welfare by coming up with new low-cost ways of satiating consumer wants, so too do government interventions come up with new ways of controlling other people, which in many cases are Uh, uh, harmful, uh, and not just to the people that they're targeted against. And so, uh, you know, to provide kind of a concrete example, you know, if you study the surveillance state, um, Mm -hmm. which of course came to light with with the revelations by Edward Snowden in in 2013, uh, you realize precisely this point that I just made, that this is by no means the first time that the U.S. government has used widespread massive surveillance on people living domestically and internationally. It's that the technology, the technological innovations that are now available, have allowed uh, the government to do so in a more effective and efficient and covert manner. And looking at kind of normal fiscal measures like amounts spent on military expenditures in, in the aggregate, or, or per capita, or, or however people want to cut cut that those kind of aggregate figures, it's irrelevant for the for the broader point I want to make. Misses these nuances. In fact, you can make the argument that you could have a falling budget and still have more state involvement and control because of innovation. I can Mm. now do more things with technology than I could before using fewer resources. Drones can do things that fighter jets could do at a a much cheaper cost. And so, you know, a lot of the discussion of aggregates, when economists even focus on things like defense, they typically say, well, Let's look at spending or spending per capita. But you need to unpack that. You need to see how it is is being spent. It's not just the scale of the state, but also the scope or the range of activities that are being undertaken. And so we apply this logic to a couple different topics, you know, surveillance, militarization of police and a few others uh, to to understand using the tools of economics and political economy, the the interplay between politics and economics, how efforts that are undertaken in the name of protecting the, the public interest The national security actually undermine those very things. Okay,
0: great. So some of this will just be redundant, but I just want to make sure we pull this out. So, for example, making things, arguments along the lines of, oh, uh, you know, it's ominous when we see how they're using drones and surveilling uh, people in Afghanistan and on the basis, you know, they didn't go to get a a judge's order. They just got some intelligence and they go and they, you know, take out this party of people because they claim they were terror. That besides, you know, in the abstract, being concerned about another human being over in Afghanistan, possibly getting blown up, even if they didn't do anything wrong. um, the, The blowback of don't kid yourself 20 years from now, that's how uh, you know, a tyrannical state is going to monitor people, you know, look for dissidents in the United States who are like posting stuff on pirate web stations or whatever that, you know, is against the, the state's line. And so, you know, even if you don't care about foreigners, don't kid yourself, that's coming back home. Is, is that part of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, while the, that's exactly right. And while the time frame, the time frame varies, you know, you, you, mm. you said 20 years and certain certainly that's the case, but it's 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 oftentimes much faster. I mean, drone, drones are used domestically for surveillance now, um, it, it, within the United States, um, and, and as well as other technologies but, that were developed abroad. So, it's, right. it's, it's in, a, fairness, in some it means, sense, it's like really quick.
0: Right. Well, in fairness, though, I mean, when they first started doing the drones, it wasn't yesterday. Uh, in the oh no, least. no, you know what I'm saying. So, the time right. frame of when it was first yep. introduced, and people are yep. like, "Hey, should we be using drones over there?" And be like, "Oh, what are you? Yep. You know, what are you crying crocodile tears for, Osama bin Laden?" You know? And it,
1: yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. And you, you know, this is interesting because one of the common attacks, which isn't a new attack, people have been making it for, for long periods of time, kind of against what are today categorized as civil libertarians, is almost like this mocking tone, like, oh, you all think that if, you know, you have a drone over there, that somehow that's going to lead to, like, a despot taking over America tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's not so much the argument, right? That, of course, that's possible. But mm-hmm. the argument is kind of rather this slow burn argument. You know, what, what, what Alexis de Tocqueville in his book, Democracy in America, he differentiated between what he called hard despotism and soft despotism. Hard despotism is when the despot takes over, and it's very observable. But soft mm-hmm. despotism is this kind of slow erosion of of, of liberties and freedoms as, as the scope of the state expands. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it's kind of like the frog being boiled. You know, it's a right. slow boil, and they don't even realize it until they're boiled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really the concern here. And I think that's a legitimate threat. Many people don't, but uh, you know, I think it's it's I think it's the main threat uh, to a free society.
0: Yeah, another example of that where so I'll be even-handed and you know because I'm sure most of my listeners are with us on the drone thing, but I bet there are a lot of people who who favor you know hey Trump go build that wall to keep these you know the immigrant the illegal immigrants out because they're going to come in and vote for a bigger welfare state and blah blah blah. And the thing I say to them is, even putting that stuff aside, if if we all agree that the the danger is twenty years from now, it's truly a dystopian you know prison usa state they're going to need to have big walls around to keep people in and so even if they build it right now for your purposes who's to stop you know what i mean so it's the same it's kind exactly of arguments right? like when they when they make fun of progressives like oh let me get this straight you want the government to take over health care and you think that we just elected hitler like, that doesn't go together, folks. You know what I mean? And they can't right, believe they're right. dumb, lefty friends. You're so committed to getting your free health care. You don't see the danger. It's like, okay, you're so committed to keeping out illegal immigrants. You don't see the danger of letting them build a wall on the border, you know, so. That's
1: a, you know, that's, that's an important see. point, yeah. That, that symmetry that you're making is a very important
0: one. Um, okay, so let me ask you, and, and maybe the answer is it's both, but in terms of um, the militarization of the police, so what you're having in mind, things like, uh, you know, like like um, what do they what do they call those things? Um, like armored personnel carriers, like yeah. these big. Th- they're, they're not tanks, but they're like they're bigger than SUVs, and yeah. they're they're harder than SUVs, You know, so these things that you see, and like so, a lot of that is like what surplus militaries. They it comes home, and then they either give it or sell it at really cheap prices. So your local police now all of a sudden have this thing where oh yeah, if there's a drug house, we just roll in with this thing, and you know, and they pose and they look like they're real badasses and stuff. Yep. So. Is that like how much of that is um, that the the local police want that stuff or the government is handing in? I, I guess what, is it the supply or the demand or both? you, you yes. know what I'm trying to get at, yes. so, yeah. so so it's
1: a, it's a combination. It's largely though on the if if I had to choose, you know, I, I think I think the supply side. So the demand, so 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 the supply's there by the government. I can talk more about that in a moment. But the demand comes from the local police or local subunits. And that's the driver of this, because in many cases, in most cases, they have to apply through these mm-hmm. programs to get it. So if they don't do it, it's not like the federal government just comes in and drops this stuff down on them, even right. though that, that surplus is in there. And you know, you, you have to understand that one of the unique features of all this is the scope of the of the battlefield. And so for many wars in human history or or in American history, not not all, of course, there there's but you know it, certainly, you know, if you if you think um, 1900s, during the 1900s, you know, wars were kind of over there. You know, you sent troops over there and then they came back after the war ended. Well, you know, one of the the unique features of kind of the more recent wars, and I'll, I'll, what I'm talking about is the war on drugs and the war on terror, which are unique wars unto themselves, but they cover the entire globe. There, There's no area that is, does not fall under the purview of the war on um, drugs and the war on terror. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with that is that You know, that means that the state or states have the ability to go everywhere because the battlefield is everywhere. And so that also means that everyone is a potential suspect, a potential combatant, because there's not people wearing uniforms over there um, that's easily divisible. All right. So, you know, the the militarization of police, you know, we talk about this now, but it really started, you know, uh, in the 80s. Uh, It started in the 80s uh, uh, under Reagan. You know, Reagan was a a key driver uh, because of the war on drugs. And, you know, people have to understand the economics of prohibition. Uh, You know, and there's been work done on this. You know, Mark Thornton's an expert on this and wrote a wonderful book on the economics of prohibition, in addition to numerous articles. You know, the gist of that is when you make something illegal, you know, it, it, it has certain economic effects. It drives it underground. It doesn't go away. It drives underground. Aground, it, it attracts high time preference people, high risk people that are willing to engage in illegal behaviors. It leads to uh, uh, the replacement of peaceful means of dispute resolution with violence. You can't call the police or take someone to court or hire you know a private arbit, arbitrator, at least one that that, that acts legally, um, if you're uh, engaged in illegal behavior. So you 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 rely on violence. That then rely, uh, requires weaponry. And so what happened is you get the war on drugs, you get the, the, out, the logical kind of outcomes of the economics of prohibition. And so what you had is you know drug gangs and cartels with weaponry and police with like a small pistol. And of course they would say, we're outmanned here, we need guns, we need weapons. So in 1981, you get the Military Cooperation uh, uh, and Law Enforcement Act. And that was the first kind of step where the Department of Defense could both share information and equipment and advice with local police departments who wanted it. And then this program went through various iterations through the 90s. Now there's something called the 1033 program and the 1122 program, if you ever hear of those. And those are the programs what where local police departments can apply for surplus equipment. And some of this is, is more mundane equipment, by the way. It's like, you know, uh, uh, night vision goggles or, you know, uh, like jackets and stuff like that. But others are kind of the MRAPs that you were talking about, uh, 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 weapons um, surveillance equipment, uh, and, and so on. Um, and, and it's not just the weapons that I think is problematic, but also just the nature of it. You know, the, the policing's always had a very kind of high variance existence with between what I mean by that is, you know, it's always meant to be to like protect people, but it's always been abused by people policing, mm. the, the policing functions of the state by but both by those in the state and, and by people connected to the state. But the, the purpose of it, even if it's an idealistic purpose, is to protect people and their property. Uh, that's at least the idea, to serve and protect. Right? We see that written on police cars. Right. And that kind of framing changes when you take on kind of the, the mentality of a of a soldier. A soldier's goal, you know, when you send a soldier into combat, you say, well, what are they doing? You don't say to serve and protect. Right? They're there to kill or, or to neutralize an enemy. And that's a very different way of thinking about things. And so, you know, you can see why that's problematic for a free society and why it's troublesome. So let's see, is it that
0: there is this cabal of people behind the scenes and they want to have, you know, the federal government get much more powerful and they realize, oh, this is partly the way to get to the police state. Is this stuff, or is it more just, uh, do you think it's more decentralized? And there, no, there's no one, in charge of this, but this is the way, this is the direction that the whole system is going. And you're just, you know, you and Abigail are like, hey, hey, everyone, look, do you see these trends? Let's turn this around. Or are there people like twirling their mustaches and being like, ah, they're onto us, but don't worry, it's too late to stop us.
1: Yeah. So, so I think it's a combination of those things, but let me Mm -hmm. just, just clarify. In other words, I don't think it's just one or the other. And I think which, which one of those or or potentially other factors are kind of driving this or context specific. I don't think there's a Cabal of people sitting in a dark room that's saying, you know, I want to give an MRAP to the police department in, you know, pick some small town in in Illinois or something like that, and I think that's the that's the way to kind of impose the police state. I do think at the national level there, I I do believe there is something called the or what is often referred to as the deep state. Again, Mm -hmm. that that you know a lot of people like that's a conspiracy theory. Well, just step back for a moment. There are unelected people in political institutions. I think that's not a controversial fact. We, right. There's people that are elected and then they either appoint people or hire them and then they outsource things to both private contractors or they appoint other bureaucrats. So they are non-elected political officials and those non-elected political officials often have significant sway over policy. Do they have complete control to do whatever they want? Of course not. Do they, is, are there, is there zero oversight? Of course not. Is there significant slack in the national security state for people to do things outside the purview of either congressional oversight or certainly the oversight of citizens? Certainly. We know mm-hmm. this. Again, you know, if, if, if you question this, just go look at the Snowden revelations. And if you think right. that's a one-off, go look at the church committee in the 70s, which is really like the Snowden revelations, but with you know, the, with weaker technologies because the, the fancier technologies didn't exist, exist yet in the 70s. And so, you know, you, we don't even need to use the term deep state if people find that problematic. I, I understand what it means. I, I like it because I think mm. it captures something. But think about this. Appointed people, special interest groups. If you understand the logic of those two concepts and, and purposeful behavior, the, the fact that people act purposely to achieve their goals. If you understand those concepts and kind of tie them together, it's no different than thinking it's a conspiracy. When there, if I said there's there's farmers who actively lobby for you know subsidies for the for the products they produce, if, if someone came and said, well that's a conspiracy, Well, no, it's not. It's kind of the logical outcome of creating uh, profits or or what economists call rents associated with politics, and people are going to come out of the woodwork to try to get those rents, and it's the same thing mm-hmm. in, in national security, and then at local police departments. Again, you know, I'm sure some of them are, or many of them, I don't know. I think it depends. I, I don't, I haven't done some kind of systematic study. I'm sure they truly believe they want to help people. I'm sure a lot of them think having state of the art equipment helps them do that. I think other people are good bureaucrats and good bureaucrats, because they can't rely on profit and loss, have to do other things to signal that they are being effective. And one of the things you can do to signal that you're being effective is produce observable stuff. I can have a parade where I roll my MRAP down the street and show people locally that look, I secured this for my constituents at zero cost because the or or minimal cost because the federal government gave it to me. You know, or uh, they can say that they're tough on crime. Right, a, a a very easy winning political argument is to say I'm tough on crime and my opponent's not. Uh, certainly today in America, that's a very easy kind of. You know, no one would say no, I, I like crime. I'm, I'm not tough right. on crime. And so how do you signal that? Well, you get lots of stuff that signals that you're taking steps to fight crime. So I think it's those factors together um, that, that creates these things, again, combined with a, a whole host of other issues. You know, the, the, the journalist Radley Balco, who's done a lot of work on the militarization of police, he, he, one of the kind of the key points uh, that he emphasizes is the, is the rise of, of no-knock rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, 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 knock raids. Again, it's associated with with the war on drugs, and and you can understand the logic behind them. Hey, Chris, you,
0: just yep. most people probably know what that means, but in case there are some, you know, I keep hearing that phrase. What exactly? What does that mean? A no knock raid.
1: Okay, a, a, a no knock raid is you know. Think about this. What is the concern in, in the war on drugs? You, you, you. Let's say you have good intelligence for a, a drug dealer or a drug producer, and you knock on their door and you announce yourself. Right, you have a warrant. You say, "Police, please open up." What's mm-hmm. the concern? They're going to run and destroy the stuff. They're going to flush it down the toilet. They're going to try to get rid of the evidence. Mm-hmm. So the idea behind a no-knock raid was that, you know, you get the, the warrant to, go into, uh, to enter someone's property, and you don't need to announce yourself before going in. I can k- literally kick the door in, or the right. windows, or both, come in and do what I want to do. And typically, if you—and you can look this up. There's a video of it on YouTube. Uh, there's tons of articles on it from a variety of scholarly and popular sources— you know, typically when they go in, they go in with heavy artillery. And, and again, they, their justification is that we don't want to get killed by the drug dealers. And you say, okay, this might work very well if you had perfect information about the drug dealers, where they are, what they're doing, and so on, and you avoid human error. But there are numerous cases, and again, Radley Balko's has done a wonderful job documenting them, of, of even, you know, very mundane errors. You know, all of us have gone to someone's house and gone up to the wrong door by mistake. We just get the number wrong. We, we make it, we read the number wrong, whatever. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. Now imagine doing that, but kicking in someone's door and you see movement and you start shooting at people. Or, you know, a, as Abigail and I talk about in the book, when we start this chapter of a case where police kicked in a door, threw smoke grenades and it went into the crib of a, of a child that was sleeping in, and basically burnt their face uh, uh, and, uh, and it had burns all over their body. And so then you have to ask yourself, you know, what's the cost of these things? Because, of course, people will push back and say, no, this is a relatively small number. All right. So it's not a big deal. Well, uh, certainly the people that are are the innocent people that are are killed, maimed, uh, and so on uh, uh, don't think it's a a small number. But also, even from the perspective of officers, the the people in the policing, it seems odd to put them in danger's way, uh, which is really what you're doing. Because when people are surprised, uh, by someone entering their home, oftentimes they'll they'll shoot. And the other uh, uh, kind of concern with this is that typically officers have officers have immunity. And so let's say you know you are a a law abiding citizen in all ways, shapes, and forms, and you have a firearm legally. And someone kicks in your front door. You're sitting there on your couch with your family. Someone kicks in your front door. The natural inclination is going to be to protect yourself. And, and I, don't, I think most people would would not think that is odd. So you shoot. Right? And then let's say you, you harm the officer. You can be held liable for that. You can be held liable in a criminal court for that. Likewise, if you get shot, the officers have immunity because they were just doing their job. And you can, so you can see how these perverse incentives uh, generate an array of outcomes which are kind of at odds with very common sense notions of, of liberty and freedom all in the name of fighting this open-ended war, war on drugs, which is unclear what it would mean to even win that war. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and even if you weren't, you know, to move away from the, you know, it's it's purest in terms of like suppose they did, really did mess up and the person wasn't a drug, but even if it is a drug dealer and they're sitting there and they've got some heavy weaponry because you know there's rival gangs and stuff and, and yeah, so if the if the police burst in or the DEA or whatever, just in a military style raid and don't announce who they are the drug dealers might not, you know, in other words, they might know enough to say, oh yeah, don't get in a shooting match with the DEA because that's not going to go well. But if you don't know it's two o'clock in the morning and people are breaking in, they they could just think it's a rival gang, in which case, yeah, of course we're going to defend ourselves. So you, you're right. Like it is it is this, like the opening premise is, oh, it's okay to use violence to stop people from ingesting substances that we don't think are good for them. And then it leads you to some pretty bad places pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. yeah. And it compounds. It, it literally... Infects all areas of life because now you just do, you know, ordinary citizens do things go to the airport, get on a cruise. There's drug sniffing dogs, there's people stopping you, there's people questioning you. And then you have all the, the policing for profit where people, you can be stopped. And if you have too much cash, as determined by the officer stopping you, they can seize those assets. Mm-hmm. And then it's your it's, the burden is on you right, to right. demonstrate your your innocence. I mean, yeah, how bizarre is that?
0: There's some horror stories. So, I used to live in Nashville, and I think it's I 40 was like the east yep. west one, if I'm not getting mixed up. And so, they were alleging that, oh, that was a, a big drug route. And what was funny is, and so they were stopping, and like you said, there's horror stories like some guy who didn't trust banks and he was going to go buy a house. And so, he was traveling with like, you know, $30,000 in cash in his trunk. And they pulled him over and took his money. And yeah, it was like a year later, he still hadn't gotten his money back because he had to prove that he wasn't a drug dealer. They, d- they didn't have to prove that he was one. Yep. They just said, no, that's weird. Who who drives around with that much cash in your trunk? You must be a drug dealer. And then he's got to go prove he wasn't. Like, that's crazy. But what was particularly telling is with this, you know, and it was I was proud of it because I knew the, the person who worked for the TV station that did the story on it is there was some local, and I don't remember what it was, but there was some local news station in Nashville that was questioning the narrative because the deal was, I, I think it was coming from the East into, you know, so Westbound into Nashville, that's, that would be the people taking the drugs. Then they would get the money and go back. And the police, all their checkpoints were set up on the money side. Right. And it was like, well, wait a minute. If, <laughs> if really what you're, you know, caring about is stopping the drug traffic, wouldn't you stop the drugs coming into Nashville rather than just taking the money from the drug dealers after they've made their sales with, you know, so um, it was fine too. Another thing you just said there was kind of an offhand remark, but you were, Talking about, oh, if people don't like the term deep state and they think it's a conspiracy theory. Ironically, a lot of the people who think, oh, the use of that phrase deep state, that's just a conspiracy. They also think that Vladimir Putin met with, you know, members of Trump's team and did sorts of things in secret to steal the presidency. Some might call that a conspiracy theory. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's to me, I don't, it's it's just so weird, or or like the nine the official 9/11 report. I, I went and Googled this. It literally has the word either conspiracy or conspired that like these 19 hijackers yeah. conspired. To, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, that, that that doesn't discredit it because people, everyone believes in conspiracy theories just for some reason in our culture. Now that phrase has come to mean not just a hypothesis involving a conspiracy of of a, conspirator, a group of conspirators, but... Something that's obviously stupid and and only a paranoid person could believe this. Like that's for some exactly reason, right.
1: yeah, it's it's yeah. meant as an insult that is meant. It's almost meant like as a stopping argument. Like I'm not right. going to listen to what you're saying because it's crazy. That's really yeah. how it's used.
0: It was weird. Like recently on NPR, I heard it had to do with that like QAnon stuff, which I don't even really know what that is. But they were making fun of it, and like they the NPR people brought it because I think Trump retweet retweeted something that was from QAnon or yeah. whatever, and. And so the NPR story, like the whole point of the bit was they brought on like a psychologist to explain what is it that makes a person receptive to conspiracy theories? And well, you know, the person feels powerless and there's forces out there and you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. to just mentally diagnose everybody who might believe in something that, you know, anyway, you get the point. Um, okay, well, why don't we then, so what? what is, your your latest book is called Defense, Peace, and War Economics, and so is, I'm, I'm assuming it's compatible with the with the previous the tyranny one. But it sounds like that's a broader focus.
1: Yeah, and so um, you know this is a it, it's an interesting area. This is so this is a monograph that's part of a, a series that um, is published by Cambridge University Press and it's called Elements in Austrian Economics and. The idea is to have these these monographs, so not full-length books, but they're also longer than, than kind of a, a academic journal article that delves into a, a topic. And as the the Austrian elements aspect implies, you know, really emphasizes how Austrian economics matters for this, what it can, what Austrian economics contributes in kind of open areas. And so this area of, of defense and peace research is an area that I've been interested in for several decades now. Um, and you know, again, the, the the origins of this go back to my early days reading, uh, that I was talking about earlier, reading Austrian economists, you know, when, when Rothbard, I think it's an article called Reply to Mr. Schuller or something like that. Schuller, I might be getting the name wrong. Mm-hmm. He lays out this taxonomy of um, what, what what falls under the purview of praxeology. And mm-hmm. one of the categories is conflict. Um, and, and um, you know, that's, that's a relative. And, you know, Mises at the end of Human Action talks about uh, uh, war and total war. So he has mm-hmm. that in there um, and so on. And so I, I was in graduate school at George Mason uh, um, my, my first semester during the 9-11 attacks. And, um, and of course, some of those were, were not too far from Fairfax where, where I was, um, the, the attack on the Pentagon. Right. And then of course, you get the US invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And very quickly, I realized that really no one was talking about some basic things that you and I were discussing earlier, the, the kind of Econ 101, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what are the incentives both people in the U.S. government face, but also people that are being intervened on and people in the, in the region and, and around the globe? What are their incentives? Do they align with what the U.S. government is telling us they want to accomplish? Do the members of the U.S. government actually know how to impose liberalism or liberal democracy in other societies? So that turned into my dissertation was on that topic. Um, and it's something I've been talking about ever ever since uh, is one of my main kind of areas of emphasis. And this monograph is an attempt to bring together a lot of those different uh, kind of insights. And so we already talked about the the tyranny aspect or the tyranny comes home aspect. So let me just touch upon two others and then we can talk about uh, whatever whatever interests you. I I think that going back to our discussion of kind of Mises and Hayek, I think there's two areas where those insights are crucial to thinking about defense and, and matters of defense and state provision of defense. And one is, as I mentioned, the ability of members of, of, of a government to intervene in another society and design that society according to its wishes. And so this is analogous to what, what Hayek at the toward the end of his career called the fatal conceit. He was talking about economic planning or what he called the errors of socialism. But the fatal conceit for Hayek is the uh, uh, belief that people can shape the world according to their desires. I have some blueprint of how the world should look and I can impose that. So that's the economic planning aspect, which I'll come to in a moment. But what about other aspects of life? Can you design political institutions? Can you design the economy? Can you design legal systems? Certainly, if you look at kind of the handbooks that are given to the members of the U.S. military, like the Stability Operations Manual, they believe you can. And they distill these things down into like these very neat, like five-step dynamics where it's like, you know, create peace, Create a viable workforce. Create a capital markets. Voila, sustainable liberal economy. It's like, all right, well, mm. wait a second here. You know that's that's easier than putting together a piece of IKEA furniture. Something right. something's amiss here. Uh, so hey,
0: just to make yeah. sure we get what you're, you're saying. They have a manual for like, if you do, if you go into a region that's lawless and chaotic, and you do regime change now, how do we fix it? Yeah, and, yeah. and, so and turn it into like the fifty-first state.
1: It, yep, exactly. So it, it it is it is what is called kind of. Uh, uh, you know what? What for a while the, the the cute kind of phrase that the members of the U.S. government using was was the three Ds: development, diplomacy, and defense. And they said you can't separate these things. So so a lot of people tend to think of like diplomacy as I'm going to engage with someone, right, and and talk with them and try to work through differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and strike agreements. Then they think of development as, well, I'm going to have the development experts come in and create economic development. And then you think of defense as, as military-related activities. Right. And what, what after 9-11 especially, what they said is we can't separate these things. And in Afghanistan, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, this took the form of what was called government in a box. That was really what it was called. And so what you did is you had the military come through. This was the idea. and Clean out the bad people, the insurgents. Right behind them, you have the humanitarians and kind of diplomats come in, and the, the humanitarians kind of clean up the uh, any collateral damage that happened, help people out, give them food and water. The diplomats talk to people and tell them what's going on, and then behind them you have the development experts come in. That's government, uh, uh, policymakers, and international organizations and economists, and then they're going to create kind of development. They're going to create economic development, and then you're going to get a self-sustaining society. That that was the vision, and then. So that's kind of a a meta knowledge issue. Like, can we actually design the institutions within which human interaction take place? I don't believe you can. Other people think you can with good planning and, and good resources. Then you kind of go to the second level of this, and that is planning within institutions. And this is where Mises and Hayek's calculation argument comes into play, which is, what is development? Well, at its core... Development is not simply achieving certain outcomes as dictated by some well-trained economist or or some policymaker. It is satiating the wants of people that live in a society, that live in the system, however we're defining the, the boundaries of that. And decisions need to be made about how to allocate and reallocate scarce resources to satiate those wants. And that economic knowledge is not given it is not known. It has to be discovered. People have to figure it out. As Mises pointed out, that requires a certain institutional setting, property rights over the means of production, and so on down the line. And so you take these things together, and it's and it's a powerful set of insights. Then you think domestically, and this is the last thing I'll say, you think about the actual production of defense within the United States or other country we're talking about. It is a exercise in non-comprehensive planning. Non-comprehensive planning is our efforts that take the logic of comprehensive planning. And they don't try to plan the entire economy like the original socialists wanted to do. They try to plan certain areas of it. Mm-hmm. And the entire military sector is an effort at this. And socialists realize this. Like if you go back to the early days of the, the calculation debate, so I'm talking you know late 1800s and the 1900s, you, you look at Mises, then you look at an economist by the name of Otto Neurath who, of course, was Mises' classmate uh, in Bambavrik's seminar. Uh, and uh, uh, Otto Naroth made the argument that uh, he has an article called, it's called something like from, from the War Economy to Economy in Kind. And what he said is, he said, look, if you look at the war effort in Europe during, during, during World War One and, and even prior to that, this was amazing. Like they took resources, they produced lots of outputs, lots of people were employed, people had money to spend. Why don't we just take that same logic and apply it to everything when the war is over? Mm-hmm. Why stop at making bombs and tanks? In fact, Nora says justice dictates that we do that. And so the very foundations of the socialist argument for certain people was grounded in the war economy. And if you think about it, that's what it is. And, you know, and, and people have talked about this. Robert Higgs, of course, has talked about this and done a lot of work. There's a, a, an engineer uh, uh, named Seymour Melman um, who's done work on this? And, and Tom Woods has written an article, I think it's in the Journal of Libertarian Studies, on, on Seymour Melman. You know, a lot of people in, in Austrian economic circles don't necessarily know Melman's name. Um, he wasn't an Austrian economist by any means, but he mm. talked about how war production distorts economic activity, um, and it, 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 he doesn't he doesn't invoke the the Misesian type of planning argument, calculation argument. But I, I think there's clear connections to be had, and so you get mm. all of these kind of constraints on both the planning side of, of production of defense, the use of defense uh, or, or what falls under the purview of defense, which is really offense. you know, That's a better word right, for a lot right. of this stuff. Abroad. Uh, and you can see how there are, and those are just some of the connections you can make from kind of the foundational tenets of Austrian economics to these issues of, of defense and peace. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that, Chris, because I was, when you said the three D's and one of them was defense and what you meant was the van our troops going over to some other country in this case, on the basis of bogus intelligence and completely, you know, dropping bombs and going through and smashing stuff and putting in a new government and calling that defense. you know yes, <laughs> it's like, yeah. And what's and I, I know probably most listeners know this, but I just love the fact that, Originally, it was the Secretary of War. Like they yeah. were honest about what that was and now it's the Secretary of Defense. And that was back when they actually were defensive wars, largely exactly. speaking, you know, so yep. it's- and it, was, and, it, and it was the
1: War Department. The War Department right, right. instead of the Department of Defense. So it's the same, yeah, same point you're
0: yeah, making, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you, so you had a lot of great stuff there. Let me, let's see. So it struck me when you said the, um how they were linking it and saying, you know what, it's no longer enough- just to go in and win on the battlefield and have a military victory. We also need to follow up with diplomacy and development and those things are all linked. It sounds so analogous to like a progressive leftist domestically saying, you know, it's not enough just to have, you know, food stamps and stuff like We got to have pre-K education because otherwise, you know, we're setting these families up for a cycle of, you know, yep. failure. Like, in other words, like there's no area of life, like they need to just keep taking over more and more and trust us, you just give us this and then everything will be great.
1: Yeah. and it That's seems yeah. like
0: it's the same thing on the on what like uh, neoconservatives
1: yep yep they know you're exactly right it is it is literally planning almost the entirety of life in the name of addressing the root cause of the 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 perceived problem and 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 it's all under the guise of liberalism of of creating freedom you know so it's kind of mm-hmm. like the you know one of the memes that goes around where the us soldiers kicking in the door and says i'm here to bring you freedom or i'm here to right, bring you right. democracy or markets or whatever the phrasing is in the specific meme but you know, there is, there is this irony there of, 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 of employing the most illiberal means you can imagine, because, you know, it's also not like when you go into a combat situation, the like, things go smoothly, you know, going back to our, mm-hmm. our conversation about the war on drugs. It's not like you go into someone's country, you kick in their front door, you tell them what to do. And they're like, okay, I, I, you know, it's not like they're pieces on a chessboard to kind of invoke right. an analogy that Adam Smith used when, when he was talking about the man of the system. Um, it is they're going to respond and oftentimes violently. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the the whole framing of it's very odd because if you listen to American politicians, you know, they'll say things like, and we talk about, you know, I've talked about this in in, in other articles and books, you know, and this is bipartisan. Obama said this, Bush said this. They'll say things like we gave, you know, Afghan citizens or Iraqi citizens the chance to be free. Like it's a gift bestowed upon them that they have rejected. Mm -hmm. It never occurs to them that like, you know, going into someone else's country, sticking kind of a, a gun in their face, either figuratively or literally, you know, may not be met and perceived as a gift. Uh, and so, you know, the whole kind of rhetoric around all this is, is is you know, very ironic and, and problematic, I think.
0: Yeah, I remember, I I think it was The Onion. I don't think it was Babylon. I think it was The Onion, like years ago, and they had a thing where the, the headline was um, Iraqi, Iraqi, uh, uh, Man says that his, uh, Iraqi man says his brother would have loved democracy had he not been killed in a drone strike or (laughs) something like that. Exactly.
1: And like a lot of those articles, it's, 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 you know, it's supposed to be, you know, fictional, but it's actually true (laughs) or captures an element of truth. Right. 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 Um,
0: So I guess we could uh, grapple with it because it is a big issue and you're right. This sort of contradiction of um, people who's all right, I'll back up. So Butler Schaefer, I don't know if you know him, but he, he wrote a book once, and I reviewed it. I'll folks. So I'll, I'll get the links. So again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 155. I'll dig up my review of uh, Butler's book on this, but it was, he was going, it was talking about world war one. And it, just as you say, Chris, that the, the progressives like who were pointing to the war industries board and how they had nationalized all these industries temporarily for the war effort. And then the progressives were understandably saying, well, wait a minute. If, if when there's, you know, when we have to go fight the Germans, that it makes sense to nationalize industry because, oh, we can't leave things to the profit and loss mechanism and wasteful competition when there's a war at stake here. Well, our our domestic things like like hunger and poverty and illiteracy and whatever else, you know, wh- were the concerns of the day, those are important too. And so why wouldn't we plan for that? If, you know, if planning works for these other goals, why wouldn't it work here too? And so- I guess is, is, I don't know if you get into this in the book, but for, so that's why for me, I try to, to the extent that I dabble in this stuff with the, you know, the economics of war and to point out, you know, Mises makes these arguments a lot that, that no, actually you like by nationalizing industries or having, you know, quota systems and play ration cards and whatever, that doesn't make you more nimble as a war machine. Like what the government needs, just raise through taxation or borrowing and go buy it in the open market and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So that like Mises makes that point a lot that that the most capitalist countries win their wars, because they're capitalists. And to the extent that they deviate from it, that's not a necessary thing that they shouldn't do that. Like you don't need a draft, that kind of stuff.
1: Yep. And so um, we, I don't deal with that directly. I mean, it's an interesting okay. point. And, and, and that passage or passages in, in human action, meets talks about that and elsewhere. You know, it, it's always struck me as interesting because, um, but before I answer that, you know, another great article on the progressive point, in addition to the the Schaefer book that you're pointing out, you know, Murray Rothbard has a, a wonderful article. I think it's the late 80s in the Journal of Libertarian Studies, it's called um, World War One is Fulfillment. Yeah, and he yeah. talks about how the World War One. you could uh, uh, you know, make the argument for World War II too as well, but kind of, as you were pointing out, I think correctly, really was kind of the, you know, as he calls it, the fulfillment of the progressive vision and how they wanted yeah. to kind of take that then and let's just extend mm. this to all walks of life. You know, it works so well here. Why, why stop there? Let's have shoes, education, healthcare, food. It's a simple extension of the logic. Um, but... Going back to, oh, the, the Mises point about buying on the open market. I think that one area where Mises perhaps, what he overlooks in that argument, and, and again, this is an empirical issue, I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making a, a claim of certainty here, but something to think about, is that it is true, I think, that that private markets certainly would produce things more efficiently and effectively than socializing them. But of course, the minute government starts getting involved in purchasing military equipment from the private sector, it creates this network, what, what, what people call the, the military-industrial complex, the, right. the military-industrial-congressional complex, which was the original name of it, um, and, which you could argue at least, or at least potentially, has the effect of, of undermining the dynamism of markets, both in the immediate term and perhaps the long term. I don't know. Again, it, it depends on, on other factors as well. Mm. But there's that aspect as well to, to think about. Um, in addition to these distortionary effects I was talking about, you know, if, if if you're a producer and you know that government is going to buy products for war, because typically government grants itself a, a monopoly on purchasing those products, or at least certain products. Some have have dual use, civilian use and military use. Um, you're going to shift your efforts to producing that, to lobbying government for not ne- not just to get into wars, even though that as well, but to constantly prepare for war, um, and, and that has distortionary effects on entrepreneurship, on the market process, on the capital structure, uh, and so on. And and those things are often unseen um, and, and unobserved and neglected. And again, you know, you know this full well. You you've argued with you know many macroeconomists in your life who hold this position that you just a dollar is a dollar. You know, a dollar mm-hmm. on a tank is a dollar invested by Bob Murphy in a private business. It's like, no, actually they're not. They're they're very different right. things when you appreciate the the structure of capital. Um, the the structure of production and, and entrepreneurship and so on, and so I think th- those are also important points that you can pull from kind of a, a number of Austrian thinkers to think about war production, right? And and so the the classic uh,
0: illustration of that insight is Bob Higgs's work to show like why the the standard like real GDP figures for the you know 1940s that ostensibly show yeah look at they ran huge deficits and we got out of the great depression and to show that, like, you know, if you break it down into private versus government GDP, yep. then you see private consumption and investment were even lower in like 1943 than they had been in like 1933, that kind of stuff. Um So that's because let me just clarify. So I'm an anarcho-capitalist. Sure. So of course yeah, I yeah. agree it would be better. So, but the point being like, for example, to say, you know, like, Oh, do we need price controls during the war? Like oh yeah cuz we got to prevent profiteering and do you know do we oh yeah. well we got to have like ration cards on using rubber because we need rubber for the war effort or for steel we can't just have it going to the highest bidder because they, they're needed for tanks yep. so just saying you know t- to me like that that doesn't make like in other words i think even a lot of believers in the free market in peacetime would agree that oh yeah during the world war of course they had to nationalize industries yep. because we're fighting the nazis and that that trumps everything and to point out, well, no, even on your own terms, if to the extent that you're going to have a government in charge of running the military, those things actually cripple the, the you know the economic response.
1: Yep, yep. So those compounding, you're exactly right. You know, rationing, um, um, price controls, nationalization, all these things are are highly distortionary. So, right,
0: or or yep. like an excess profits tax or a yep. windfall profits tax and stuff that just you know hampers the. uh the you know like because Mises has some great stuff, folks, and I'll I'll link to because I I had an article on this about the economics of war and Mises, where I'm, I'm not going to do it justice, but saying things like when the war breaks out, like what needs to happen is entrepreneurs need to convert factories that have been making cars need to start cranking out tanks, right? And so in general, oh, if, if conditions change and you need entrepreneurs to see that, and you don't have an excess profits tax, that's the last thing in the world you want. That's, right. that's right. You want to so, um. Let's see. So I guess, do, do you get into, uh, well, how, how much of it is the, the conventional, you know, like the cynical view being that these wars are all driven by like the defense company and, and Scott Horton has a great point saying like when you see um, ads for like Boeing and Raytheon and, and stuff like on major media, it's not because someone in the audience who watches CNN is thinking about buying an F-16, you know, it's like, why do they have it? And his theory was that's the way these defend, these alleged, you know, defense contractors funnel money to major media just to make sure that they're treated sympathetically. And what you you get what I'm saying? So like, yeah. it, and it really is amazing. Like even as much as the media hates Trump's guts and he's Hitler, if he launches cruise missiles against somebody, it's like Trump actually acting presidentially. You yeah. know, it's amazing. Yeah. Like as long as he's killing people, then all of a sudden they they actually respect him.
1: Yep. And remember, of course, he was knocked. So originally when Trump took over, people were like, this guy's crazy. He's going to start World War three. Then he actually engages in diplomacy. And oh, mm. this guy's crazy. He's meeting with these horrible leaders. So you can't right. like, which one is it? Like, you know, and right. then, you know, oh, he should have attacked this person, or that person. Well, if he's a lunatic, you don't want him having nuclear weapons, but we need him to have those because you need anyway. It's a, it's a hot mess. Mm. But you know, the, 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 I, I don't think that all wars are undertaken for profiteering. But by, by, mm-hmm. by private interests and you know, I, I in saying that I want to make sure I'm clear. It's not that I don't think private firms influence public policy and foreign policy. They certainly do. And if you just look throughout history, you know, what what much of and this is one of the critiques of capitalism from Marxists, of course. Um, and, and John Hobson had a book called Imperialism. I think it's like 1902. Um, where he made the argument, and and, and he influenced Lenin, and, and um, when Lenin talked about this, how capitalists, you know, part of the capitalist system is constantly expanding your markets and, and looking for kind of new markets to sell your wares, but also to exploit mm-hmm. resources as you exploit all your resources domestically, and that so a natural part of capitalism for them is war making, um, and I certainly don't think that either. I don't think war making and capitalism go hand in hand. In fact, I, I view them as being uh, as significantly opposed to one another. Um, and uh, 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 you know, so I, I don't want to say that those interest groups don't have any influence, but I also like most things, they don't have monocausal, meaning they're not the single factor driving all wars. There's lots of things. There's geopolitics, there's the the interests of politicians, which can be tied to, to you know, Halliburton or prop forms, but to lots of other things too. Mm-hmm. And some of those can be, you know, I, I also think that we, we shouldn't dismiss that. I think politicians oftentimes believe that they're doing good. They think mm-hmm. that by intervening around the world and controlling things and shaping things that they're somehow doing good. We can disagree on that, by the way, but I, I, we also can't rule it out. Um, but at the same time, you know, I do think, you know, going back to Scott Horton's point, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his work in general, um, that these advertisements are part of what I would consider, or, or, or what Abby and I talk about, in our, our next book, which is coming out in, in probably nine months, called "Manufacturing Militarism." Play on Chomsky's book "Manufacturing Consent," right. how the U.S. government and, and combined with the military-industrial complex engages in, in constant propaganda, uh, and part of that is to normalize militarism. Nor- so, so, part of the way you can see this is, is it, these advertisements. Just like you can see, you know, the military somehow playing an active role in U.S. sporting events uh, mm-hmm. is, to, is to normalize the military, to normalize those. Op- this is just a normal part of life. And to question those things makes you crazy. You, you're, you're either unpatriotic or, or you know, you're an apologist for whatever Foreign country or government you want to put uh, there, or you don't want people to be safe. You want soldiers to die, or you want innocent people to die. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it, it, at least in the American system, from from a young age, you are taught that the military is is literally indispensable. Uh, and you know, you 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 walk through an airport and you see members of the military, and what happens? People often applaud for them. They thank right, them. They right. buy them meals. You know, and I've, I've had friends who, who are in the military, but they have, don't, don't have combat roles. They're like in a back office job. And they're like, it's very weird when I'm, I'm walking through the airport or, you know, sitting in a restaurant, and someone buys my meal. I want to be like, hey, I'm just, you know, filling out mm-hmm. papers. Or, you know, I had a, I had a mm-hmm. former student who was a JAG, um, so a lawyer. And uh, he's like, I've never been in combat. I will, I'll never be in combat. I'm a lawyer you know, and, uh, you know, so it's weird that people do this, but that's what's ingrained in your head. And if you look at opinion polls throughout time, the military, uh, trust in the military in America is extremely high. Uh, trust in Congress, trust in the executive branch varies, and oftentimes is quite low. I don't know who they think is controlling the military. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, so there, there's that con- there's that aspect of this to, to combat as well. And I think the onus on us, and I say us you know being you know people like yourself who think about these issues alternatives to the state not not necessarily just like let's put another rule in place to constrain the state but can mm-hmm. we envision a world that doesn't require the state to perform a certain service a topic i'm interested in as well the onus is on us to both think about those things conceptually and empirically very much like you do in your in your book on uh, chaos theory right mm-hmm. it's, it's like a mix of empirics of, of of theory and you're trying to think through these really hard issues and I think that's an open research program, an area of interest. It's not its not a closed set of conclusions, but rather something we need to think about really hard and invest time and effort in thinking about uh, uh, academically in a scholarly way.
0: Let's be a little bit fanciful now. So you mentioned something. Living, through the, living in the U.S. the last few years, I have finally, like I totally understand now, like the stereotypical thing, like in a South American country where the civil government is just, completely corrupt and not working and the generals take over and why a large portion of the public supports that. That never made sense to me before. But like, what's wrong with those people? Now I totally get it. I can totally see in the US in the not so distant future where it's just so dysfunctional. Like, you know, let's say this upcoming election, it's close. They're still arguing over mail and ballots a week later. We'd like 30% of the country genuinely believes Trump's the president. Another 30% genuinely believes Biden's the president and they're willing to go to civil war over it. And you could see the military finally just stepping in and be like, okay, you know, we're, we're taking charge and we're gonna start, we're, we're, it would be an interim thing. And you can imagine a lot of people think, oh, thank God, you know, let's have some tanks in the streets to stop the looting and the rioting and da-da-da, whereas I wouldn't have thought it could happen here that quickly if you'd asked me five years ago. And so yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, given all that, you know, you're studying and you're looking at other countries and like, h- how much do you think Americans don't realize how far things have gone here?
1: You know, I, again, I, I'm not going to make any predictions about November. I, you know, the Atlantic I think had an article; uh, it was very recent about kind of these different mm. scenarios. Some of them were peaceful transfers. I some. want you
0: to tell us which quarter uh, is the Civil War start? <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know, but certainly, I look the the people have to realize that the U.S. government, irrespective of what we're talking about, you know, the current president, the future president, or or the last several administrations, the U.S. government has one of, if not the most powerful surveillance apparatus in the history of mankind. I say one of Mm. because I, you know, you might make an argument that China, uh, the Chinese government's surveillance apparatus is is either equal to or superior. So I don't know how you would measure those things. But, you know, the U.S. government has access to literally everyone's information. And they've had access to it for, uh, again, to to varying degrees, depending on the technology, for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, um, you know, Again, people will say, you know, the normal thing is I have nothing to hide, so that's okay. But to my way of thinking, and, and Abigail Hall uh, and I talk about this in the conclusion of our book, Tyranny Comes Home, we, we call it the, anti- like, how do you get out of this ever? It's really hard to get out of it. Government's not going to constrain itself because asking the people who wield power to constrain that power, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, the burden falls on the citizenry. And they need to hold what we call an anti-militaristic mentality. And that has certain. It puts a, a strong burden on people. They have to care about freedom. They have to understand the, the nature of government and kind of the paradox of government. You give government a lot of guns to protect you. They might protect you, but they also might point those guns at you. And so how do you resolve that dilemma? Uh, these issues that we've been talking about, about how kind of special interest groups can manipulate uh, government policy and the allocation of resources for their narrow interest. Uh, but it also requires uh, a healthy skepticism about claims by government about the need for military apparatus and an understanding of government, not just as a source of protection, what you and I were talking about in terms of defense and offense before, but as a threat too. And it's not just a threat against other people, but a threat against citizens. And so any power you give to government to protect you also creates a a, a threat against you. And so, you know, if the wrong person, whoever that was, got to be in charge and the the conditions existed that granted them a significant amount of discretionary power, because there are checks and balances, there are people that check behavior. It's not like Mm. Donald Trump can do anything he wants at any point in time. He can do a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. then certainly the, the U.S. government could literally take over domestic life right now. They, could, they have control of the banking system, the surveillance, the ability to kill people very easily through the military technology that we were talking about earlier, uh, and so on. And so people have to be aware of that. This is not, and, and again, I'm not like sounding the alarm like tomorrow the world's going to end, but that exists. You know, and, and, and we talk about this at the end of the book. You know, David Hume. The Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, who's been known for many things, but one of the things he's known for is what's called Hume's political maxim. What Hume said is: when we're thinking about political rules, imagine that the knave is in charge. And what he meant as the knave was kind of the think about, it can be either a person, like choose your, your, the, 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 the real world politician that you either despise right now the most or historically have despised, or it can be some kind of ideal type. Think about the, the, the least desirable politician you can think of, the characteristics, and imagine that person running whatever program or policy or, mm. or controlling the surveillance apparatus. Would you want them to have it? If not, that should give you pause because right. the, the standard way people think about things, kind of as you were talking about earlier, I think correctly, is that people kind of suffer from presentism. And if my person is in charge, I'm okay with it. But if the other person is in charge, then somehow we're going to, to, to hell in a handbasket. But that doesn't solve the fundamental kind of problem, which is that it's the it's the power that you've given to that 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 the person in that position. It's the, the problem. And so well, one way to think about this is a lot of people like let's constrain it. Another way is let's get rid of it. Let's not have so much power concentrated in the hands of a of a, of a single person. And you see that right now. I mean, think about in the, in America, irrespective of where you know the, the viewers stand ideologically. Think about how much power is really associated with two positions right now, a Supreme Court justice and the President of the United States, mm-hmm. such that, that depending on, on, on a choice between people, it can have radically different outcomes that can affect literally hundreds of millions of people. To my way of thinking, something is is severely amiss with that kind of system. Um, and it's not something like we need a couple more rules written down to constrain people. It's mm-hmm. that you know maybe that, that kind of power shouldn't be concentrated in, in that centralized form.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I still wish, though, that you would pick the quarter in which the Civil War begins. <laughs> uh, all joking aside, though, I mean, so not, not pinning you down that hard, but I mean, do you, and, and I know you, no matter what you say, is going to end up being wrong, so you don't want to be too specific, but but in terms of you studying this stuff and having books on it and tyranny coming home, and I'm just wondering how, how pessimistic are you about like the next five years? Sure,
1: so I, look, I, I'm, I'm, optimistic overall because I think given my worldview, which requires you know like you, I, I very much think in terms of, of anarcho-capitalism. And mm-hmm. so that worldview I think is inherently optimistic about the future, about human beings. It might be pessimistic about aspects if not the entirety of the, of the status quo. Mm-hmm. but you know I, I I'm not I, I you know I, I like to think that there's not going to be a civil war. I like to think that even if under the worst case scenario like you're talking about where there's splits there's you know disagreement about the supreme court nomination or nominee whoever that is you know that this is extended out months due to absentee ballots you know there'll be protests there'll be violence no doubt do I think the country's going to erupt into a, into an outright civil war across the country no if i if you force me to pick again I, mm-hmm. I could very well be wrong i don't you know, the, the thing with the interesting thing about civil wars and revolutions is no one can predict them or usually they'd be squashed right, in right. the first place. Um, and so I, and, and the other reason why I think is that the minute real violence came into play, I think the, the federal government would get involved. I, I do. I think the mm. I, I, and we saw hints of this already, like in Portland you know the, the the law and order type response, right? Uh, I, I, so again, that, now if everyone started revolting, there wouldn't be enough military force to, to squash them all. Not not unless you dropped some kind of nuclear weapon on them. Um, but uh, you know, so that's why I'm I'm kind of pes- I'm kind of optimistic about there there not being an outright civil war. So over the next five years, look, I I, I believe very much in line with what you know Mises argued in liberalism, uh, and what Hayek argued in, in Constitution of Liberty that human civilization is fundamentally the result of human creativity, that as long as humans are given enough space to exercise that creativity, that things will, will continue to get better. Um, or, or what you know the economist Julian Simon called the ultimate resource, human creativity, mm-hmm. the human mind. Um, I think that when the state does pretty much everything it does, it squashes part of human creativity. But I still think you know there's there's a lot of margins of of human freedom, and so I'm optimistic because I think that as long as those margins are allowed to persist um, I, I I think and I hope might be a hope more than than thinking you know kind of the Julian Simon or or Mises Hayek racehorse of innovation of improvements in human welfare will continue to beat the state horse that's trying to hold that back right right
0: well what I'm taking away from this discussion is that when uh, when the the new Republic of Texas breaks away from the Biden administration, they're going to send in defense, diplomacy, and development. <laughs> to, you know, after they after they drop the, uh, the 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 small scale the tactical nukes, just just on just on um you know areas outside of Houston. <laughs> um, okay, why don't we wrap up with? I know you're the co-editor of the uh, Review of Austrian Economics and the Independent Review. So can you just to speak a little bit like how, how do you do like did you do Gandhi's thing about be the be the editor you want to see in the world like you just said hey I want these journals to go in a certain direction and you do or is it more just you evaluate each article on its merits or how, how does that work like, I I've never been an editor of a journal so I don't know like what the philosophy is or how do you approach that task?
1: Sure. That's, a, that's a wonderful question I don't you know again I've been doing this now for for a while for in both journals and um, mm. And, and I think it varies, um, and, and by journal to journal, I mean. And you know, mm. first of all, I'm honored to be involved in both journals. I mean, the Review of Austrian Economics, Murray Rothbard was involved in it originally, founding the founding of it mm. is what I mean. Um, and then since then, Joe Solano has been involved, Walter Block's been involved. I think Pete Betke took over the Review of Austrian Economics, I think in 1999. And so when I when I came into graduate school in the early 2000s, I I, I started working with him kind of as like the managing mm. editor. And so I was I wasn't involved in evaluating papers or anything like that. It was like processing. Um, But I learned kind of the backroom operations of of how a journal works. Um, And then I I continued to be involved in that after I I graduated and and, and entered academics. Um, I I was the North American editor for several years and then became co-editor in 2013. And that's also when I became co-editor of The Independent Review. The Independent Review was uh, founded in 1996 by Bob Higgs and uh, David Thoreau. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the emphasis there is, is kind of on classical liberal or, or political economy with a classical liberal kind of bent to it. And so it's a different mm-hmm. focus than the RE, although there's some there's some overlap, of course. And so, you know, at the RE, of course, you know, there's different views on editing. And, and early on, long ago, when, when journals, start, you know, I'm talking decades ago, uh, you know, editors would basically edit. They would get a paper they would oftentimes make a decision themselves. They'd write what we would call referee reports today. Oftentimes they'd kind of line, uh, they'd line by line edit the paper, um, and it was a, a much more personal process. Now what's kind of happened, and I don't know, uh, you know, you, you're, you you write academic articles as well, so you can push back on this if you want. But I think a lot more what's happened is that editors kind of are, are almost like facilitators, where they get a paper, they either desk reject it, so send it back and say we're not going to send this out, or they send it out. The referees say something. They just say the referee said accept, accept, revise and resubmit, or you know reject, and then they just say that to the author. Um, and I, I try to strike a, a middle ground with the rep. And I do. Whereas I'll, we'll get papers, and, and you know the way I think about it is: does this paper contribute to our understanding of Austrian economics, either historically or how we do Austrian economics now? Mm-hmm. And so. You know, and does it meet academic standards in a broad sense? And so, from that standpoint, we're kind of gatekeepers. We filter because we also don't want to waste people's time if we're not going to publish the paper, either the author's right. time or or. So, I try to have a quick turnaround with that. We try to find qualified referees, so anonymous reviewers, to review it. And I always use those as a guide rather than as a final decision maker. And so, mm. usually, I align with the referees. You know, if, if a referee, especially, you know, and, and of course, I should thank you because you've helped us numerous times with papers. Um, your areas or have special- I? We don't know. But, you know, uh, if someone has if it's an area where it's outside my 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 an area where I have a ton of specialization, I, I oftentimes rely on the referees to provide insight to that aspect. Mm-hmm. But I'll still use it as a, as a guide. Sometimes we'll go to get another opinion if, if it's kind of a split decision. Sometimes we go against referee decisions. they will say reject. but I'll say, look, I think this paper has potential. So why don't mm-hmm. you revise it? Independent Review is slightly different. Um, there's three of us. I, I co-edit the journal with Mike Munger and Robert Waples. We're, we're equal co-editors. And there it's much more, I mean, Pete and I are in constant contact with the RE. Um, but, but with the Independent Review, it's, it's much more run as a, as a group where each paper we discuss, we decide if we're going to send it out, we identify referees, we get those reports, and then we discuss them as a group and make a decision. Um, and we try to reach consensus as much as we can on each paper. Um, and so in each case, you're, you're, you're a gatekeeper. You can't help but have some vision of what the journal should look like. That's, you know, all no matter who's running a journal, you have some vision of what counts as, as fitting with the journal and what what doesn't count. Uh, and, and, you know, we just try our best to select the highest quality papers that, that fit. Um you know, in the independent review, we also do a lot of special issues. We do some of the review of Austrian economics. We do a lot of special issues around themes. So I've done them on foreign policy before, on kind of different views mm. uh, in classical liberalism on foreign policy. Right now, I'm doing one on public health in a free society. So how would a free society handle issues of public health? And it's kind of motivated by the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so- well, yeah. yes, so that's, that's a good example of what I mean, where you're not passively just sitting back and saying, well, whatever people send, will look like you might decide, no, I think this is a hot thing. We should have an issue devoted to oh, this thing. Certainly, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And then we do, you know, with uh, you know, with certain kind of key events in Austrian economics. So a couple of years ago, we did one. It was the anniversary of, uh, of Mises' uh, Nation, State, and Economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, we did an issue around that. Um, and, and uh, you know, so we, it's a mix. And of course it's open. So people can submit papers whenever they want and, um, you know, on, on whatever topic they, they think fits with the journal as well. And so it's a mix of those.
0: All right, last thing, let me, uh, I want to get your feedback on or your opinion. Are you familiar with what was called the Grievance Studies hoax?
1: Um, is this the, the- It was
0: like Peter Bagassian and James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, and they, they did this stuff like the like the rapes in the dog park and stuff yeah. like that. And, and
1: then it got through the journal process, right?
0: Right, so they got a yeah. bunch of stuff published in like these critical studies yep. journals, and and then, but they of course didn't believe it. Like the, the point was to show, look at the weakness of this, of these disciplines. So when that happened, of course. So I don't know if you know, but like a lot of the stuff is hilarious. Like,
1: yeah, I know in one I know, of them exact. they they
0: took they took passages from Mein Kampf and yep. just changed it to be like, you know, women empowerment and put it in that way, and it got through and stuff like that. So, but I was really thinking it through and wondering, like, what does that mean, and like, would we be vulnerable to something like that? And so my take was, no, I can honestly say, like, this like the stuff that I, I'm not an editor, but as a referee, like, if it turned out that, you know, I was the referee on a paper that made some point about libertarian political philosophy, follow- like the implications of the non-aggression principle or or the one I picked was like, suppose someone made a case for, you know, the, the private market delivery of suitcase nukes and what would it look like in a free society? And you can imagine someone getting that through and getting published in the Journal of Libertarian Studies or whatever. And then the author coming, surprise, I'm a normal person. Look at these crazy nut jobs. I got an article published. But like, if it had made contribute, I would say, no, that was good. Like they couldn't just say socialism, bad free markets. Yay. We wouldn't have published that. Like it would have to be a genuine contribution and it'd have to cite the literature. And, you know, if if they didn't deal with the obvious objections, we would say as a referee, well, no, I mean, a normal person reading this is going to think wouldn't warlords use this. So you got to deal with, you know what I'm saying? So my point and and the the ultimate one I took was like a math journal. If someone got something published in a math journal, it wouldn't matter whether the person believes it or not. You'd say, no, this followed the rules and blah, blah, blah. So short of if they, you know, in one of the cases they just falsified data, like at yep. like the dog park one, and so there I can say, yeah, using a referee, you're going to trust they're not just making up numbers or something, and so there. But in terms of like the intent of the person, I thought, no, like the way we run our stuff, that we're not vulnerable to that. Like that wouldn't be embarrassing. I said, okay, if you don't believe it, fine, but it was a good contribution.
1: Right, exactly. And so you know, in general, I'm not a huge fan of kind of gotcha. Things like mm-hmm. that in general, and and this has become like a thing. And I don't like it from either side, by the way. I don't like got. I caught you doing sorry, gotcha And 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 I don't like it in that form. I don't like it in the form of an of another kind of common form. Now is kind of in intellectual history where you look back at someone and you kind of attack them as a person and you say, well, this person, you know, said this at this time. They're a racist, right. so therefore you dismiss everything they say. Right. And you know. I, it's not to say a person's person makeup doesn't matter for certain areas of study. If you want to learn about a person, certainly you want to know about them. But it's, it's a, I think it's a very cheap, poor form of, of scholarship. Now, mm. you know, I, I would like to think that, you know, as journal editors, we always keep out the bad stuff and the made up stuff. And I don't, th- I, I agree with you overall. Look, I think that someone could submit something and they have a paragraph or like a footnote that says something goofy and it would get through and then they could say, see, Chris Coyne's a goof. He let a goofy thing mm-hmm. through. It's like, yeah, you know, I didn't sit there and read every single line carefully and I should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like you point out, you know, for an empirical paper with data that, you know, we, we end up trusting the author. We don't, even when we, we look at certain things, we'll say like, you know, can we can we see kind of you know the the kind of overview of your statistics right and so we can look at certain aspects mm-hmm. of it we don't say like i'm going to go replicate the data and the exact test to see right, what you right. did and if you did that very little would get done <laughs> um, right that, that's right. an argument to my way of thinking to open up journals to replication studies which are not as you know not very popular in most journals because they don't mm-hmm. say anything new necessarily um but you know i so I don't I don't think about this too much just because like you I'm like I, I hope that we evaluate papers carefully enough to like if they make a, an argument I don't care what the person believes as you pointed out is it a good argument or a bad argument I don't care if it's crazy by someone's standards is it good is it a good argument given the scope of the journal mm-hmm. if it is then let's go with it and have that discussion and people can argue back if they want to um, but again you know this the whole movement towards like I got you I recorded you saying so it's like mm-hmm. the thing where people you have know, any of us recorded took recorded what we said and then took certain things out of context, we would all sound like nuts, crazy people. Right. Right. That's any human being. <laughs> and so right. it's a I I so that's why I kind of when, when people on the right, I remember as I was going around, were so excited about that. I, I don't think it somehow attacked the discipline. You know, I, I don't think it undermined the the discipline. Even if I don't like what the people in that discipline do, and I, I don't have a mm-hmm. strong opinion on it. Right. Well,
0: Uh, On that, so where I ended up concluding, just I don't want to mislead the listeners and I'll, I'll, folks, I'll put, I I did an episode on this, so I'll link to that. But um, I was just trying to refine, like what exactly is the lesson from that? Because I agreed there was something there. And what I think, uh, and and some people agreed with me after, is that the ease with which these three people just walked into these fields and published apparently in some of their top journals. Whereas like if you thought quantum physics was goofy, Like, oh, it can be a particle and a wave. You couldn't just walk in and read a bunch of quantum physics articles three months later and then go get published in the top journal and pretend to be, you know what I mean? Like you just, you wouldn't be able to fake it. And the same thing here. Like I'm in other words. So I think like certainly Austrian economics and, you know, for the RAE or the QJE, someone couldn't just go in and have read a little bit of Mises and then bluffed and fooled us. Like we'd say, no, well, did you read this article? No, he says this, and then there's critic. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you couldn't just watch. No, so no, I think I part I of what they showed was just yep. the lack of rigor in these fields.
1: Yeah, right. I build, agree. Yeah. And, and, and mm-hmm. there was an earlier hoax in the 90s. I think it's called the Sokol, right? Isn't that right, the Sokol right. affair, yeah. Sokol hoax, which was, he was a physicist, I think. Did right, it? I right. think it was in cultural mm-hmm. studies again. In any case, yeah, I, I agree with you. I certainly, some fields are easier to do it in than others. Um, and so, and it also might mean, by the way, it, it, we have to keep open that there's something wrong with those fields if that, if that can happen. So I don't want to exclude that either. Um, right. I just, so I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. It certainly made me think as a journal editor, much along the lines of what you were thinking about, like, could, could I fall prey to this? Um, right. so from that right. standpoint, it's a useful thought exercise in itself,
0: I think. Mm-hmm. And, and, and last thing I'll say when I, do try to do, if I do, if I am refereeing a paper that has empirical stuff, I will like, you know, do a kind of an idiot test, like just to go and look and see, is there anything jumping out that, no, that can't, you know, that regression coefficient can't be right, you know, that kind of stuff. And I might even go check, go Google a few things just to spot check it, just to see, do I catch them, you know, but yeah, you're like, you say, you're not going to go reproduce the whole thing. Um, I mean, you might like. You know, if, if I was a referee for like a medical journal or something, I, I probably might, you know, if people's lives are sick, but you know, it's, it's economics. No one's going to read this. Stuff anyway. so, <laughs> <laughs> it's if we're talking about the structure of Ancapistan, you know, when they get down to that, they'll say, you know, Murphy, why didn't you vet this better? This guy <laughs> made up these numbers. You know. Okay. Well, that's probably a good s- spot to wrap up. So, uh, folks, the, uh, the URL for all this stuff is Bob Murphy show.com slash one fifty five. My guest has been Chris Coyne. Chris, thanks so much for your time and uh, thanks for everything you're doing.
1: Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Take care. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.